This recording is a service of the Allen County Public Library's audio reading service. It is specifically designed for and directed to people who have visual, physical, learning, or language challenges to reading traditional printed materials. Welcome to The Atlantic, the historic magazine that offers a unique editorial view on the arts, politics, and current events. Catch up on the important news happening in the world around you. The Atlantic, found only here on your audio reading service. Welcome. This is The Atlantic, and I'm your reader, Susan, with the audio reading service of the Allen County Public Library in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Today, I will be reading from the January-February issue of The Atlantic, and we'll start with The Church of America, My Father, My Faith, and Donald Trump, an essay by Tim Alberta. It was July 29, 2019, the worst day of my life, though I didn't know that quite yet. The traffic in downtown Washington, D.C. was inching along. The mid-Atlantic humidity was sweating through the windows of my chauffeured car. I was running late and fighting to stay awake. For two weeks, I had been sprinting between television and radio studios up and down the East Coast, promoting my new book on the collapse of the post-George W. Bush Republican Party and the ascent of Donald Trump. Now I had one final interview for the day. My publicist had offered to cancel. It wasn't that important, she said, but I didn't want to. It was important. After the car pulled over on M Street Northwest, I hustled into the stone pilloried building of the Christian Broadcasting Network. All in a blur, the producers took my cell phone, mic'd me up, and shoved me onto the set with the news anchor, John Jessup. Cameras rolling, Jessup skipped past the small talk. He was keen to know, given his audience, what I had learned about the president's alliance with America's white evangelicals. Despite despite being a lecherous, impenitent scoundrel, the 2016 campaign was marked by his mocking of a disabled man, his xenophobic slander of immigrants, his casual calls to violence against political opponents. Trump had won a historic 81% of white evangelical voters. Yet that statistic was just a surface-level indicator of the foundational shifts taking place inside the church. Polling showed that born-again Christian conservatives, once the president's softest backers, were now his most unflinching advocates. Jessup had the same question as millions of other Americans. Why? As a believer in Jesus Christ and as the son of an evangelical minister raised in a conservative church in a conservative community, I had long struggled with how to answer this question. The truth is, I knew lots of Christians who, to varying degrees, supported the president, and there was no way to summarily describe their diverse attitudes, motivations, and behaviors. They were best understood as points plotted across the spectrum. At one end were the Christians who maintained their dignity while voting for Trump, people who were clear-eyed in understanding that backing a candidate pragmatically and prudentially need not lead to unconditionally promoting, empowering, and apologizing for that candidate. At the opposite end were the Christians who had jettisoned their credibility, people who embraced the charge of being reactionary hypocrites, still fuming about Bill Clinton's character as they jumped at the chance to go slumming with a playboy-turned-president. Most of the Christians I knew fell somewhere in the middle. They had to some extent been seduced by the cult of Trumpism. Yet to composite all of those people into a caricature was misleading. Something more profound was taking place. Something was happening in the country. Something was happening in the church that we had never seen before. I had attempted ever so delicately to make these points in my book. Now, on the TV set, I was doing a similar dance. Jessup seemed to sense my reticence. Pivoting from the book, he asked me about a recent flare-up in the evangelical world. In response to the Trump administration's policy of forcibly separating migrant families at the U.S.-Mexico border, Russell Moore, a prominent leader with the Southern Baptist Convention, had tweeted, Those created in the image of God should be treated with dignity and compassion, especially those seeking refuge from violence back home. 
At this, Jerry Falwell Jr., the son and namesake of the Moral Majority founder and then president of Liberty University, one of the world's largest Christian colleges, took great offense. Who are you at D.R. Moore, he replied. Have you ever made a payroll? Have you ever built an organization of any type from scratch? What gives you the authority to speak on any issue? This being Twitter and all, I decided to chime in. There are Russell Moore Christians and Jerry Falwell Jr. Christians, I wrote, summarizing the back and forth. Choose wisely, brothers and sisters. Now, Jessup was reading my tweet on air. Do you really see evangelicals divided into two camps, the anchor answered. I stumbled. Conceding that it might be an oversimplification, I warn still of a fundamental disconnect between Christians who view issues through the eyes of Jesus and Christians who process everything through a partisan political filter. As the interview ended, I knew I'd botched an opportunity to state plainly my qualms about the American Evangelical Church. Truth be told, I did see evangelicals divided into two camps— one side faithful to an eternal covenant, the other side bowing to earthly idols of nation and influence and, fl- and fame. But I was too scared to say so. My own Christian walk had been so badly flawed. And besides, I'm no theologian. Jessup was asking for my journalistic analysis, not my b- biblical exegesis. Walking off the set, I wondered if my dad might catch that clip. Surely somebody at our home church would see it and pass it along. I grabbed my phone, then stopped to chat with Jessup and a few of his colleagues. As we said our farewells, I looked down at the phone, which had been silenced. There were multiple missed calls from my wife and oldest brother. Dad had collapsed from a heart attack. There was nothing the surgeons could do. He was gone. The last time I saw him was nine days earlier. The CEO of Politico, my employer at the time, had thrown a book party for me at his Washington Manor, and Mom and Dad weren't going to miss that. They jumped in their Chevy and drove out from my childhood home in southeast Michigan. When he sauntered into the event, my old man looked out of place, a rumpled Midwestern minister, baggy shirt stuffed into his stained khakis. But before long, he was holding court with diplomats and Fortune 500 lobbyists, making them howl with one irreverent one-liners. It was like a Rodney Dangerfield flick come to life. At one point, catching sight of my agape stare, he gave an exaggerated wink, then delivered a punchline for his captive audience. It was the high point of my career. The book was getting lots of buzz. Already I was being urged to write a sequel. Dad was proud. Very proud, he assured me. But he was also uneasy. For months, as the book launch drew closer, he had been urging me to reconsider the focus of my reporting career. Politics, he kept saying, was a sordid, nasty business, a waste of my time and God-given talents. Now, in the middle of the book party, he was taking me by the shoulder, asking a congressman to excuse us for just a moment. Dad put his arm around me and leaned in. You see all these people, he asked. Yeah, I nodded, grinning at the validation. Most of them won't care about you in a week, he said. The record scratched. My moment of rapture was interrupted. I cocked my head and smirked at him. Neither of us said anything. I was bothered. The longer we stood there in silence, the more bothered I became. Not because he was wrong, but because he was right. Remember, Dad said, smiling, on this earth, all glory is fleeting. Now, as I raced to Reagan National Airport and boarded the first available flight to Detroit, his words echoed. There was nothing contrived about Dad's final admonition to me. That is what he believed. That is who he was. Once a successful New York financier, Richard J. Alberta had become a born-again Christian in 1977. Despite having a nice house, beautiful wife, and healthy firstborn son, he felt a numbing emptiness. He couldn't sleep. He developed debilitating anxiety. Religion hardly seemed like the solution. 
Dad came from a broken and unbelieving home. He had decided halfway through his undergraduate studies at Rutgers University that he was an atheist. And yet one weekend while visiting family in the Hudson Valley, my dad agreed to attend church with his niece, Lynn. He became a new person that day. His angst was quieted. His doubts were overwhelmed. Taking communion for the first time at Goodwell Church in Montgomery, New York, he prayed to acknowledge Jesus as the Son of God and accept him as his personal Savior. Dad became unrecognizable to those who knew him. He rose early, hours before work, to read the Bible, filling a yellow legal pad with verses and annotations. He sat silently for hours in prayer. My mom thought he'd lost his mind. A young journalist who worked under Howard Cosell at ABC Radio in New York, Mom was suspicious of all this Jesus talk, but her maiden name, Pastor, was proof of God's sense of humor. Soon, she accepted Christ, too. When Dad found he was being called to abandon his finance career and enter the ministry, he met with Pastor Stuart Pullman at Goodwill. As they prayed in Pastor Stu's office, Dad said he felt the Spirit of the Lord swirling around him, filling up the room. He was not given to phony supernaturalism. In fact, Dad might have been the most intellectually sober, reason-based Christian I've ever known. But that day, he felt certain the Lord anointed him. Soon, he and Mom were selling just about every material item they owned, leaving their high-salary jobs in New York and moving to Massachusetts so he could study at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. For the next two decades, they worked in small churches here and there, living off food stamps and the generosity of fellow believers. By the time I arrived in 1986, Dad was Pastor Stu's associate at Goodwill. We lived in the church parsonage, my nursery was the library, where towers of leather-wrapped books had been collected by the church pastors dating back to the mid-18th century. A few years later, we moved to Michigan, and Dad eventually put down roots at a startup cornerstone church in the Detroit suburb of Brighton. It was part of a minor denomination called the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, EPC, And it was there for the next 26 years that he served as senior pastor. Cornerstone was our home because mom also worked on staff leading the women's ministry. I was quite literally raised in the church, playing hide and seek in storage areas, doing homework in the office wing, bringing high school dates to Bible study, working as a janitor during a year of community college. I hung around the church so much that I decided to leave my mark. At nine years old, I used a pocket knife to etch my initials into the brickwork of the narthex. The last time I'd been there, 18 months earlier, I'd spoken to a packed sanctuary at Dad's retirement ceremony, armed with good-natured needling and PG-13 antidotes. Now I would need to give a very different speech. Standing in the back of the sanctuary, my three older brothers and I formed a receiving line. Cornerstone had been a small church when we'd arrived as kids. Not anymore. Brighton, once a sleepy town situated at the intersection of two expressways, had become a prized location for commuters to Detroit and Ann Arbor. Meanwhile, Dad, with his baseball allegories and Greek linguistic lessons, had gained a reputation for his eloquence in the pulpit. By the time I moved away in 2008, Cornerstone had grown from a couple hundred members to a couple thousand. Now the crowds swarmed around us, filling the sanctuary and spilling out into the lobby and adjacent hallways where tables displayed flowers and golf clubs and photos of Dad. I was numb. My brothers, too. None of us had slept much that week. So the first time someone made a glancing reference to Rush Limbaugh, it did not compute. But then another person brought him up. And then another. That's when I connected the dots. Apparently, the king of conservative talk radio had been name-checking me on his program recently, a guy named Tim Alberta, and describing the unflattering revelations in my book about Trump. Nothing in that moment could have mattered to me less. 
I smiled, shrugged, and thanked people for coming to the visitation. They kept on coming, more than I could count. People from the church, people I'd known my entire life, were greeting me, not primarily with condolences or encouragement or mourning, but with commentary about Limbaugh and Trump. Some of it was playful, guys remarking about how I was the same mischief maker they'd known since kindergarten. But some of it wasn't playful. Some of it was angry. Some of it was cold and confrontational. One man questioned whether I was truly a Christian. Another asked if I was still on the right side, all while Dad was in a box a few hundred feet away. It got to the point where I had to take a walk. Here in our house of worship, people were taunting me about politics as I tried to mourn my father. I was in the company of certain friends that day who would not claim to know Jesus, yet they shrouded me in peace and comfort. Some of these card-carrying evangelical Christians, not so much. They didn't see a hurting son. They saw a vulnerable adversary. That night, while fine-tuning the eulogy I would give at Dad's funeral the following afternoon, I still felt the sting. My wife perceived as much. The unflappable one in the family, she encouraged me to be careful with my words and cautioned against mentioning the day's unpleasantness. I took half of her advice. In front of an overflow crowd on August 2, 2019, I paid tribute to the man who taught me everything, how to throw a baseball, how to be a gentleman, how to trust and love the Lord. Reciting my favorite verse from Paul's second letter to the early church in Corinth, Greece, I told of Dad's instruction to keep our eyes fixed on what we could not see. Reading from his favorite poem about a man named Richard Corey, I told of Dad's warning that we could amass great wealth and still be poor. Then I recounted all the people who'd approached me the day before, wanting to discuss the Trump wars on AM talk radio. I proposed that their time in the car would be better spent listening to Dad's old sermons. I spoke of the need for discipleship and spiritual formation. I suggested, with some sarcasm, that if they needed help finding biblical listening for their daily commute, the pastors here on staff could help. Why are you listening to Rush Limbaugh, I asked my father's congregation. Garbage in, garbage out. There was nervous laughter in the sanctuary. Some people were visibly agitated. Others looked away, pretending not to hear. My dad's successor, a young pastor named Chris Winans, wore a shell-shocked expression. No matter, I had said my piece. It was finished, or so I thought. A few hours later, after we buried dad, my brothers and I slumped down into the couches in our parents' living room. We opened some beers and turned on a baseball game. Behind us in the kitchen, a small platoon of church ladies worked to prepare a meal for the family. Here, I thought, is the love of Christ. Watching them hustle about, comforting mom and catering to her sons, I found myself regretting the Limbaugh remark. Most of the folks at our church were humble, kind-hearted Christians like these women. Maybe I'd blown things out of proportion. Just then, one of them walked over and handed me an envelope. It had been left at the church, she said. My name was scrawled across it. I opened the envelope. Inside was a full, page-long, handwritten screed. It was from a longtime cornerstone elder, someone my dad had called a friend, a man who'd mentored me in the youth group and had known me for most of my life. He had composed this note on the occasion of my father's death to express just how disappointed he was in me. I was part of an evil plot, the man wrote, to undermine God's ordained leader of the United States. My criticisms of President Trump were tantamount to treason against both God and country, and I should be ashamed of myself. However, there was still hope. Jesus forgives, and so could this man. If I use my journalism skills to investigate the deep state, he wrote, uncovering the shadowy cabal that was supposedly sabotaging Trump's presidency, then I would be restored. He said he was praying for me. I felt sick. Silently, I passed the letter to my wife. She scanned it without expression. 
Then she flung the piece of paper into the air, and with a shriek that made the church ladies jump out of their cardigans, cried out, What the hell is wrong with these people? There has never been consensus on what exactly it means to be an evangelical. Competing and overlapping definitions have been offered for generations, some more widely embraced than others. Billy Graham, a man synonymous with the term, once remarked that he himself would like to inquire as to its true meaning. By the 1980s, thanks to the efforts of televangelists and political activists, what was once a religious signifier began transforming into a partisan movement. Evangelical soon became synonymous with conservative Christian and eventually with white conservative Republican. My dad, a serious theologian who held advanced degrees from top seminaries, bristled at reductive analysis of his religious tribe. He would frequently state from the pulpit what he believed an evangelical to be, someone who interprets the Bible as the inspired word of God and who takes seriously the charge to proclaim it to the world. From a young age, I realized that not all Christians were like my dad. Other adults who went to our church, my teachers, coaches, friends, parents, didn't speak about God the way that he did. Theirs was a more casual Christianity, less a lifestyle than a hobby, something that could be picked up and put down and slotted into schedules. Their pastor realized as much. Pushing his people ever harder to engage with questions of canonical authority and Trinitarian precepts and Calvinist doctrine— Dad tried his best to run a serious church. But for all his successes, Dad had one great weakness. Pastor Alberta's kryptonite as a Christian, and I think he knew it, though he never admitted it to me, was his intense love of country. Once a talented young athlete, Dad came down with tuberculosis at 16 years old. He was hospitalized for four months at one point. Doctors thought he might die. He eventually recovered, and with the Vietnam War escalating, he joined the Marine Corps. But at the officer candidate school in Quantico, Virginia, he fell behind in the physical work. His lungs were not healthy. After receiving an honorable discharge, Dad went home saddled with a certain shame. In the ensuing years, he learned that dozens of the second lieutenants he'd trained alongside at Quantico, as well as a bunch of guys he'd grown up with, were killed in action. It burdened him for the rest of his life. This experience and his disgust with the hippies and the drug culture and the war protesters turned Dad into a law and order conservative. Marinating in the language of social conservatism during his time in seminary, this was the heyday of the moral majority, he emerged a full-spectrum Republican. His biggest political concern was abortion. In 1947, my grandmother, trapped in an emotionally abusive marriage, had almost ended her pregnancy with him. She had a sudden change of heart at the clinic and walked out, a decision my dad would always attribute to holy intercession. But he also waded into the culture wars, gay marriage, education curriculum, morality, and public life. Dad always told us that personal integrity was a prerequisite for political leadership. He was so relieved when Bill Clinton's second term ended that he and Mom hosted a small viewing party in our living room for George W. Bush's 2001 inauguration to celebrate the return of morality to the White House. Over time, however, his emphasis shifted. One Sunday in early 2010, when I was home visiting, he showed the congregation an ominous video in which Christian leaders warned about the menace of Obamacare. I told him afterward that it felt inappropriate for a worship service. He disagreed. We would butt heads more regularly in the years that followed. It was always loving and always respectful. Yet clearly, our philosophical paths were diverging a reality that became unavoidable during the presidency of Donald Trump. Dad would have preferred any of the other Republicans who ran in 2016. He knew that Trump was a narcissist and a liar. He knew that he was not a moral man. 
Ultimately, Dad felt he had no choice but to support the Republican ticket, given his concern for the unborn and the Supreme Court majority that hung in the balance. I understood that decision. What I couldn't understand was how, over the next couple of years, he became an apologist for Trump's antics, dismissing criticism of the president's conduct as little more than an attempt to marginalize his supporters. Dad really did believe this. He believed that the constant attacks on Trump's character were ipso facto an attack on the character of people like himself, which I think on some subconscious level created a permission structure for him to ignore the president's depravity. All I could do was tell dad the truth. Look, you're the one who taught me to know right from wrong, I would say. Don't be mad at me for acting on it. To his credit, dad was not some lazy, knee-jerk partisan. He was vocal about certain issues, gun violence, poverty, immigration, the trappings of wealth that did not play to his constituency at Cornerstone. Dad wasn't a Christian nationalist. He wanted nothing to do with theocracy. He just believed that God had blessed the United States uniquely and felt that anyone who fought to preserve those blessings was doing the Lord's work. This made for an unfortunate scene in 2007 when a young congregant at Cornerstone, a Marine named Mark Kidd, died during a fourth tour of duty in Iraq. Public opinion had swung sharply against the war, and Democrats were demanding that the Bush administration bring the troops home. My dad was devastated by Kidd's death. They had corresponded while Kidd was overseas and met for prayer in between his deployments. Dad's grief as a pastor gave way to his grievance as a Republican supporter of the war made it known to local Democratic politicians that they weren't welcome at the funeral. I am ashamed, personally, of late leaders who say they support the troops, but not the commander-in-chief, Dad thundered from his pulpit, earning a raucous standing ovation. Do they not see that discourages the warriors and encourages the terrorist? This touched off a firestorm in our community. Most of the church members were all for Dad's remarks. But even in a conservative town like Brighton, plenty of people felt uneasy about turning a fallen Marine's church memorial into a partisan political rally. Patriotism in the pulpit is one thing. Lots of sanctuaries fly an American flag on the rostrum. This was something else. This was taking the weight and the gravity and the eternal, eternal certainty of God and lending it to an ephemeral and questionable cause. This was rebuking people for failing to unconditionally follow the President of the United States when the only authority were meant to unconditionally follow, particularly in a setting of stained glass windows, is Christ himself. I know Dad regretted it, but he couldn't help himself. His own personal story and his broader view of the United States as a godly nation, a source of hope in a despondent world, was impossible to divorce from his pastoral ministry. Every time a member of the military came to church dressed in uniform, Dad would recognize them by name, ask them to stand up and lead the church in a rapturous round of applause. This was one of the first things his successor changed at Cornerstone. Eighteen months after Dad's funeral in February 2021, I sat down across from that successor, Chris Winans, in a booth at the Brighton Bar and Grill. It's a comfortable little haunt on Main Street, backing up to a wooden playground and a mill pond. But Winans didn't look comfortable. He looked nervous, even a bit paranoid, glancing around him as we began to speak. Soon I understood why. Dad had spent years looking for an heir apparent. Several associate pastors had come and gone. Cornerstone was his life's work. He had led the church throughout virtually its entire history, so there would be no settling in his search for a successor. The uncertainty wore him down. Dad worried that he might never find the right guy. And then one day, while attending a denominational meeting, he met Winans a young associate pastor from Goodwill, the very church where he'd been saved and where he'd worked his first job out of seminary. 
Dad hired him away from Goodwill to lead a young adults ministry at Cornerstone. And from the moment Winans arrived, I can tell that he was the one. Barely 30 years old, Winans looked to be exactly what Cornerstone needed in its next generation of leadership. He was a brilliant student of the scriptures. He spoke with precision and clarity from the pulpit. He had a humble, easygoing way about him, operating without the outsized egos that often accompanies first-rate preaching. Everything about this pastor, the boyish sweep of brown hair, his delightful young family, seemed to be straight out of central casting. There was just one problem. Chris Winans was not a conservative Republican. He didn't like guns. He cared more about funding anti-poverty programs than cutting taxes. He had no appetite for President Trump's unrepentant antics. Of course, none of this would have seemed heretical to Christians in other parts of the world, given his staunch anti-abortion position. Winans would in most places be considered the picture of spiritual and intellectual consistency. But in the American evangelical tradition and at a church like Cornerstone, the whiff of liberalism made him suspect. Dad knew the guy was different. Winans liked to play piano instead of sports and had no taste for hunting or fishing. Frankly, Dad thought that was a bonus. Winans wasn't supposed to simply placate Cornerstone's aging base of wealthy white congregants. The new pastor's charge was to evangelize, to cast a vision and expand the mission field, to challenge those inside the church and carry the gospel to those outside it. Dad didn't even think there was undue risk. He felt confident that his hand-chosen successor's gifts in the pulpit and his manifest love of Jesus would smooth over any bumps in the transition. He was wrong. Almost immediately after Winans moved into the role of senior pastor at the beginning of 2018, the knives came out. Any errant remark he made about politics or culture, any slight against Trump or the Republican Party, real or perceived, invited a torrent of criticism. Longtime members would demand a meeting with Dad, who had stuck around in a support role and unload on Winans. Dad was asked if there was any substantive criticism of the theology. Almost invariably, the answer was no. A month into the job, when Winans remarked in a sermon that Christians ought to be protective of God's creation, arguing for congregants to take seriously the threats to the planet, people came to Dad by the dozens, outraged, demanding that Winans be reined in. Dad told them all to get lost. If anyone had a beef with the senior pastor, he said, they needed to take it up with the senior pastor. Dad did so himself, buying Winans lunch at Chili's and suggesting that he tone down the tree-hugging. Winans had a tough first year on the job, but he survived it. The people at Cornerstone were in an adjustment period. He needed to respect that, and he needed to adjust, too. As long as Dad had his back, Winans knew he would be okay. And then Dad died. Now Winans told me he was barely hanging on at Cornerstone. The church had become unruly. His job had become unbearable. Not long after Dad died, making Winans the unquestioned leader of the church, the coronavirus arrived. And then George Floyd was murdered. All of this is Donald Trump campaigned for re-election. Trump had run in 2016 on a promise that Christianity will have power if he won the White House. Now he was warning that his opponent in the 2020 election, former Vice President Joe Biden, was going to hurt God and target Christians for their religious beliefs. Embracing dark rhetoric and violent conspiracy theories, the president enlisted prominent evangelicals to help frame a cosmic spiritual clash between the God-fearing Republicans who supported Trump and the secular leftists who were plotting their conquest of America's Judeo-Christian ethos. People at Cornerstone began confronting their pastor, demanding that he speak out against government mandates and Black Lives Matter and Joe Biden. When Winans declined, people left. The mood soured noticeably after Trump's defeat in November 2020. 
A crusade to overturn the election results led by a group of outspoken Christians, including Trump's lawyer, Jenna Ellis, who later pleaded guilty to a felony charge of aiding and abetting false statements and writings, and the author, Eric Metaxas, who suggested to fellow believers that martyrdom might be required to keep Trump in office, roiled the Cornerstone congregation. When a popular church staffer who had been known to proselytize for QAnon was fired after repeated run-ins with Winans, the pastor told me the departures came in droves. Some of those abandoning Cornerstone were not core congregants, but plenty of them were. They were people who served in leadership roles, people Winans counted as confidants and friends. By the time Trump supporters invaded the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021, Winans believed he'd lost control of his church. It's an exodus, he told me a few weeks later, sitting inside Brighton Bar and Grill. The pastor had felt despair and a certain liability, watching the attack unfold on television. Christian imagery was ubiquitous, rioters forming prayer circles, singing hymns, carrying Bibles and crosses. The perversion of America's prevailing religion would forever be associated with this tragedy. As one of the legislative ringleaders, Senior Josh Hawley, explained in a speech the following year, long after the blood had been scrubbed from the Capitol steps, we are a revolutionary nation precisely because we are the heirs of the revolution of the Bible. That sort of thinking, Winans said, represents an even greater threat than the events of January 6. A lot of people believe there was a religious conception of this country, a biblical conception of this country, Winans told me, and that's the source of a lot of our problems. For much of American history, white Christians have enjoyed tremendous wealth and influence and security. Given that reality and given the miraculous nature of America's defeat of Great Britain, its rise to superpower status, and its legacy of spreading freedom and democracy, and yes, Christianity, across the globe, it's easy to see why so many evangelicals believe that our country is divinely blessed. The problem is, blessings often become indistinguishable from entitlements. Once we become convinced that God has blessed something, that something can become an object of jealousy, obsession, even worship. At its root, we're not talking about idolatry. America has become an idol to some of these people. If you believe that God is in covenant with America, then you believe, and I'd heard lots of people say this explicitly, that we're a new Israel, Winans said, referring to the Old Testament narrative of God's chosen nation. You believe the sorts of promises made to Israel are applicable to to this country. If you view America as a covenant that needs to be protected, you have to fight for America as if salvation itself hangs in the balance. At that point, you understand yourself as an American first and most fundamentally. And that is a terrible misunderstanding of who we're called to be. Plenty of nations are mentioned in the Bible. The United States is not one of them. Most evangelicals are sophisticated enough to reject the idea of this country as something consecrated in the eyes of God. But many of those same people have chosen to idealize a Christian America that puts them at odds with Christianity. They have allowed their national identity to shape their faith identity instead of the other way around. Winans chose to be hypervigilant on this front. Hence the change of policy regarding Cornerstone's salute to military personnel. The new pastor would meet soldiers after the service, shaking their hand and individually thanking them for their service. But he refused to stage an ovation in the sanctuary. This wasn't because he was some bohemian, anti-war activist. In fact, his wife had served in the army. Winans simply felt it was inappropriate. I don't want to dishonor anyone. I think nations have the right to self-defense. I respect the sacrifices these people make in the military, Winans told me. But they would come in wearing their dress blues and get this wild standing ovation. And you contrast that to whenever we would host missionaries. They would stand up for recognition and we would give them a golf clap. And you have to wonder why. What's going on inside our hearts? 
this kind of cultural heresy was getting Winans into trouble. More congregants were defecting each week. Many were relocating to one particular congregation down the road, a revival-minded church that was pandering to the whims of the moment, led by a pastor who was preaching a blood-and-soil Christian nationalism that sought to merge two kingdoms into one. As we talked, Winans asked me to keep something between us. He was thinking about leaving Cornerstone. The psychological onslaught, he said, had become too much. Recently, the pastor had developed a form of anxiety disorder and was retreating into a dark room between services to collect himself. Winans had met with several trusted elders and asked them to stick close to him on Sunday morning so they could catch him if he were to faint and fall over. I thought about Dad and how heartbroken he would have been. Then I started to wonder if Dad didn't have some level of culpability in all of this. Clearly, long before COVID-19 or George Floyd or Donald Trump, something had gone wrong at Cornerstone. I had always shrugged off the crude, hysterical, sky-is-falling Facebook post I would see from people at the church. I found it amusing if not particularly alarming, that some longtime Cornerstone members were obsessed with trolling me on Twitter. Now I couldn't help but think these were warnings, bright red blinking lights that should have been taken seriously. My dad never had a social media account. Did he have any idea just how lost some of his sheep really were? I never told Winans about the confrontations at my dad's viewing or the letter I received after taking Rush Limbaugh's name in vain at the funeral. Now I was leaning across the table, unloading every detail. He narrowed his eyes and folded his hands and gave a pained exhale, mouthing that he was sorry. He could not even manage the words. We both kept quiet for a little while. And then I asked him something I'd thought about every day for the previous 18 months, a sanitized version of my wife's outburst in the living room. What's wrong with American evangelicals? Winans thought for a moment. America, he replied. Too many of them worship America. Tim Alberta is a staff writer at The Atlantic. This article was adapted from his new book, The Kingdom, the Power, and the Glory, American Evangelicals in an Age of Extremism. Also from the January-February issue, under Culture Critics and the Omnivore, we have the bizarro buddy comedy of Please Don't Destroy, How SNL's Video Sketches Spoof Male Bonding Rituals, by David Sims. The video that ushered Saturday Night Live into the digital era barely made it to television, and when it did, it was largely ignored. It's a heartfelt conversation between two friends, played by Andy Samberg and Will Forte, about a recent tragic loss. After every emotional beat, each of them takes a bite out of a large head of lettuce. When the video was screened during SNL's live taping, the studio audience was clearly puzzled, the laughs barely rising above a polite chuckle. Lettuce, created in 2005 by Samberg's Lonely Island sketch group, could have been the end of SNL's experimentation with pre-recorded digital sketches. But then two weeks later came Lazy Sunday, a music video in which Sandberg and his SNL co-star Chris Parnell rap about lame, sensitive stuff, as Sandberg once put it, buying Magnolia Bakery cupcakes and going to a matinee of the Chronicles of Narnia, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. To this day, it feels like something furtively sneaked onto the air, a blast of youthful punchiness wedged in between SNL's often bloated bits of vaudeville. Lazy Sunday became a breakaway hit and ultimately helped demonstrate that SNL could still be a place where comedy felt fresh and strange rather than rote and reactive. 
As Lonely Island's profile rose, its grainy videos turned into slick, celebrity-studded spectacles. Perhaps the pinnacle of the group's achievement was 2006's Dick in a Box, in which Samberg parodied the songwriting and music video conventions of 19's boy band pop, recruiting a veteran of that moment, Justin Timberlake, to join in. Wearing gift wrap packages on their crotches, Samberg and Timberlake deliver a pitch-perfect send-up of the boy-making ballads of acts like Color Me Bad and Backstreet Boys. The production is gleefully boneheaded and delightfully weird, but not so weird that the show's core demographic would miss the joke. Samberg left SNL in 2012. The other two members of Lonely Island, Akiva Schaefer and Jorma Tacone, left around the same time. For a while, it seemed like the show might never recapture the group's knack for virality. Two cast members, Kyle Mooney and Beck Bennett, starred in several surreal digital exclusives, but they failed to attract much of a following and were often cut before airtime. These had the bizarro vibe that viewers had come to expect from the form, but without Lonely Island's mainstream legibility, more lettuce than Lazy Sunday. Then in 2021, SNL hired Ben Marshall, John Higgins, and Martin Herlihy, a comedy team who'd met at NYU, and called themselves Please Don't Destroy. The group had developed a big following with short videos for TikTok and Twitter during the COVID lockdowns, but its members could easily have been dismissed as legacy hires by a nearly half-century-old institution. Both Higgins's and Hurley's fathers wrote jokes for SNL. Despite that pedigree, the three have brought something new to the venerable sketch show, which recently returned from a hiatus lengthened by the writer's strike. They figured out how to tap into the manic, juddering energy of comedy in the smartphone era. Part of what makes a please-don't-destroy sketch so disorientingly funny is the way it can snap from the quotient to paranoid hysteria in seconds. In March 2021, before the group joined SNL, one video opened with Marshall returning home after getting his first COVID vaccine. His friends asked the then-ubiquitous question, Pfizer or Moderna? Neither, it turns out. Marshall proudly proclaims that he's gotten the off-brand Dumbreka vaccine. They put me under for the whole thing, and it only took a couple of hours, he reports cheerily. Higgins and Hurley's confusion builds to concern as Marshall describes his post-jab symptoms. I've been expelling a ton of black bile, he says. His friends try to impress upon him that his health seems imperiled, but Marshall angrily denounces them as anti-vaxxers before promptly collapsing on the floor unconscious. On SNL, the group's brisk, lo-fi skits still play like fever dreams with the intense, quick-cut cadence that defines the TikTok aesthetic. The videos tend to begin in mundane settings, often the ambiance-free office that the three young writers inhabit at Rockefeller Center. Their tenuous place in the show's hierarchy and desperation to come up with material are a consistent backdrop. Please Don't Destroy, in its dry, Gen Z way, relies on the classic sketch comedy gambit of escalating some minor concept into absurdity. But it's arguably doing something deeper, too. The videos have a certain fraternal energy that is key to the group's appeal. They feel like compressed buddy comedies with an edge of lunatic horror. The three men are presented as best friends, yet they are always on the brink of exploding into some outlandish fight. Because they seem to know almost everything about one another, they can attack insecurities with abandon, then reconcile just as quickly. This dynamic is perhaps most clearly on display in a sketch, where Marshall feels excluded after discovering that Higgins and Hurley are lying about having plans just so they can hang out alone. Marshall decides to spy on his friends, with help from a deranged Woody Harrelson, and learns that not only are they happily playing video games without him, but they have secretly married and started a family. Shifting ideas of masculinity is a theme SNL has frequently mined in recent years. One 2021 
Getch Man Park advertises the equivalent of a dog park where men who struggle with intimacy can connect over football and Marvel movies. Although entertaining as far as it goes, the sketch was content to hit a familiar satirical target, the inability of men to express emotions. Please Don't Destroy is at once more surreal and more nuanced in its portrait of male friendship. In one sketch, Marshall and Hurley gleefully rattle off insults about Higgins's ex-girlfriend, only to learn that they've gotten back together, that they are now, in fact, engaged, and that the ex-girlfriend has been sitting in the room the entire time. Also, her entire family has been listening on Zoom. The skit captures the male tendency to bond through ridicule, to avoid the subject of romance at all cost, and to fear that maintaining an adult relationship is antithetical to being one of the boys. And despite the terrible things the three do and say to one another, the fun they have pushing the boundaries of their comedy ever further is palpable. Inevitably, the group's success has now led to a movie deal. In November, NBC's streaming service Peacock released Please Don't Destroy, The Treasure of Foggy Mountain, written by and starring Hurley Higgins and Marshall. The three play themselves, except they're all employees of a Bass Pro-type store run by Marshall's disapproving dad, depicted with cruel relish by Conan O'Brien. Seeking an escape from the daily grind, the friends go into the woods on a treasure hunt. The treasure of Foggy Mountain struggles in ways that are familiar from many of the SNL-themed movies that flooded theaters in the 90s after the success of Wayne's World, comedies that tried to elevate one-joke sketches like Coneheads and A Night at the Roxbury into film-length odysseys. There are flashes of comic virtuosity here. But like most SNL films, The Treasure of Foggy Mountain feels padded, even at 90 minutes, perhaps more so given the sprightly sketches with which Please Don't Destroy made its name. Simmering, straight male insecurity remains the engine of the comedy, with the needy alliances of the three pals shifting throughout the plot. Here, though, the dynamic wears itself out. As the stars hunt for treasure, their friendship is tested before all is eventually forgiven. Think the Goonies, except the children are nominally adults. Seeing the trio do their thing at feature length, you mostly just miss that dingy SNL office and those funhouse mirror glimpses of their oddly charming bond. David Sims is a staff writer at The Atlantic. Well, that's all the time we have for today. This has been Susan with The Atlantic. I hope you've enjoyed today's reading from the audio reading service at the Allen County Public Library in Fort Wayne, Indiana.